0: A spotted African leopard stalks its prey, his green eyes focused on an unsuspecting gazelle grazing not 50 feet away. In a stealthy attack, the big cat jumps and suffocates its helpless victim. Off to the side, crouching in the bushes, some of our ancestors observed the brutal attack, waiting for the majestic predator to finish its meal. But by the time he leaves, the best of the meat is gone, and the bloody bones remain untouched the ape-like creatures waste no time and quickly use their jagged rock knives to cut through the bones to the juicy bone marrow. Some anthropologists argue that bone marrow might have been the food that fueled human evolution. Almost two million years ago, our primate ancestors were by no means the apex predator, but they invented creative tools that gave them an advantage over other species. Yet, the role of food in human affairs has long gone beyond simple necessity. It's also a symbol of identity, status, luxury, and greed, sometimes even used to make political statements. In 2009, the animal rights organization group PETA created a dress made out of lettuce to discourage meat eaters. In 2010, American singer Lady Gaga wore a dress made out of raw beef to express herself I'm Rosario Lebrija Rasbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Picta Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Today, we imagine the future of food. What are the moral implications of what we choose to eat, how we produce our food, and how we distribute it? Can humans have a sustainable relationship with food that serves the interests of other animals and our planet? To answer, we're joined by the famous philosopher Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton and founder of the nonprofit organization, The Life You Can Save. His books include Animal Liberation and The Ethics of What We Eat. We also welcome Dr. Afton Halloran, an independent consultant in sustainable food system transitions who advises governmental agencies and organizations across the globe. Finally, we hear from Gillian Deason who heads Speak to Asset Management's Nutrition Strategy. Professor Singer, you became a vegetarian in the 1970s after a university friend convinced you that this was a moral lifestyle choice. Can you tell us the argument that worked for you?
1: The argument that worked for me was that we were inflicting suffering on animals. And I suppose behind that, there was a question about, well, are we concerned about the well-being of animals? But certainly from my ethical Viewpoint, which was already a broadly utilitarian one. And of course, utilitarians want to maximize happiness and minimize suffering. And they want to maximize happiness and minimize suffering for any being who's capable of suffering or enjoying life. So I didn't see how I could draw that boundary line between humans and animals, unless, of course, you argued that animals didn't really suffer, but that didn't seem very plausible. And I looked at a few, you know, I guess before I completely made the change, I I looked around to see what arguments there were. But there didn't seem to be any very good arguments in the literature that I could see for why the suffering of animals shouldn't matter. So it was that combination of the idea that we didn't have a good justification for saying that the suffering of animals doesn't count, plus the facts about the suffering that animal, modern animal industry was inflicting on animals.
0: Why do you think we're starting to question our food habits more today than All those decades ago, when you sat down at that restaurant and decided to go vegetarian?
1: Yeah, it's taken a a long time. um, And I think there's a number of factors. One of them would be greater concern about climate change and greater awareness of the contribution of uh, meat and dairy in particular to climate change. So I think that that's a big factor. I also think the growing availability of really good plant based food has made a difference. When I became vegetarian, it was actually pretty hard to find soy milk, for example, or any plant-based milk. Uh, There was one health shop in Oxford that you could get soy milk, and that was the only kind of non-dairy milk that was around. But that's, of course, now everywhere. And there's a lot of other products too that are like the kind of plant-based burgers are much more available than than they were then. All sorts of meals. You go to a restaurant. It was difficult even just to get a vegetarian meal at some places in, in England and in, in Europe in general. Now, you can not only get a vegetarian meal pretty much everywhere, you can usually get a vegan meal as well. So, once you get that, then um, you start to build up a critical mass and things become much easier for everyone. And I think that's a big factor in uh, the kind of wave of plant-based eating. Well, you're right in the middle of of that wave that I'd say began maybe 10 years ago when things started to get a lot easier for people to live on a plant-based diet.
0: You've said that we should base our food habits on the intensity of the pain of the animal. How would you qualify that? Do, for example, insects feel pain?
1: i 'm agnostic on whether insects feel pain, and uh, probably or quite possibly, the answer is some do and some don 't because there 's such an enormous variety of insects and of invertebrates generally, and some of them, if we just stick with insects, some of them may have far more neurons than others. Bees are right up there at the top um, in terms of having around a million neurons, which is not very much compared to humans or uh, other uh, mammals but It's a lot for for insects, and there are other insects which have far fewer. Some insects tend to act in a pretty rote kind of way, a pretty predictable mechanical way. Others seem to vary more in the circumstances, so maybe there's some consciousness going on. I don't know. I I give them the benefit of the doubt where I can, but it's not always possible. I must admit, I'm going to slap a mosquito that's trying to bite me if I'm sitting around (laughs) outside on an evening. I think, I think you have to be realistic about that. So, mostly I'm talking about vertebrates, but as I said, some invertebrates, um, I think an octopus, for example, is a mollusk, but uh, pretty clearly I think is conscious. If you go online and look at some of the videos of octopuses solving problems, they seem to be highly intelligent. So, I don't think consciousness is limited to vertebrates, but they're the most obvious cases.
0: Dr. Afton Halloran, you have a viral TED Talk on the consumption of insects. You know, I'm actually Mexican, and in my culture, people have been eating all types of insects for centuries. Why do you argue in favor of this diet? Uh,
2: I know insects always come up as a as a preferred topic around sustainable food systems because, in many cultures, it is the most unusual uh, unusual for us here in, in Europe, in North America, and Australia, for example. But in many other parts of the world, it is a normal part of traditional food culture. And so, my point of departure there. Have actually been uh, working in other regions of the world, not necessarily here in Europe, but in East Africa and Southern Africa, in Asia and Southeast Asia, where uh, in many different parts of these countries and regions, you have kind of subcultures of insect consumption, and that, in many ways, has been because of all the different kinds of changes in diets is falling away. We're losing those traditions, and it is a part of tradition and heritage of of many cultures. There's over 2000 edible insect species on this planet, and we're still finding more um, and documenting more. And so by far, uh, if you compare that to the amount of uh, livestock species that we have domesticated, and that we actually consume on a regular basis, that's just a handful. So there's an amazing amount of diversity there. And for me, basically, the interest in insects was kind of stemming from this this belief that we are eating a very limited diet. Um, so the insects were a way to show that. Well, if we embark on this kind of journey to understand all the foods that we could actually consume and look at what we're not consuming, our diets are extremely limited. So you could use kind of the the insect argument uh, for many other kinds of uh, food, fruits and vegetables, and. So that, for me, is, has been my, uh, one of my areas of research for the last uh, eight years, uh, simply because it was underutilized and, and not recognized in dietary guidelines, for example, in the countries where they are consumed. It wasn't being recognized by governments, and it was being completely ignored. And as a result, these traditions, they do disappear over time.
0: Professor Singer, the pandemic we're facing today, like many others, was caused by the relationship between humans and animals. Why do pandemics arise in these environments? And what do you think it can teach us about the relationship we have with animals?
1: Well, I think something like 70% of the uh, infectious diseases that have caused epidemics or pandemics have been zoonotic diseases. In other words, they've uh, originally been in non-human animals, and then they've been transmitted to humans. And of course, the current coronavirus pandemic uh, that is causing COVID-19 is exactly one of these cases. It's a virus that may have come from bats. Uh, it may have been transmitted from bats to other animals who we have eaten uh, and in particular, it implicates the wet market in the Chinese city of Wuhan, uh, where the virus first uh, spread among humans, and uh, it was traced back to those animals. Uh, now, these, these wet markets are places where live animals are on sale but they're not on sale as pets. When you buy one, it's then slaughtered on the spot in front of you and you're presented with the corpse to take home and, and cook and eat. And so you've got a lot of different species all closely confined together in small cages, you know, perhaps on top of each other. Also, of course, their feces are all around there and their blood when they're slaughtered on the spot as well. So it is clearly a kind of environment in which if animals have diseases that can uh, be transmitted to humans or can uh, evolve in ways that can be transmitted to humans, you're very likely to get them spreading. So, that's uh, one of the issues. Another issue is that modern intensive animal agriculture crowds animals together indoors in buildings in very large numbers. So, for example, anybody who's eating chicken, it's very likely that their chicken came from a unit that had twenty to 30,000 birds in a single shed all very crowded or all stressed from the crowding. And uh, scientists have described that as, you know, if you really wanted to breed new viruses, that's what you would do. You would get thousands of animals together, stress them so that their immune system uh, response is weak, um, and you would get new viruses developing. And that's happened several times. It, it happened with the the previous pandemic to this one, which was a swine flu pandemic in two thousand and nine, um, also killed hundreds of thousands of people, but mostly in developing countries. So we didn't hear so much about it in in the industrialized world. But that came out of intensive pig farms in either Mexico or uh, the United States. Uh, we've also had uh, avian influenza coming out of intensive chicken farms. Uh, so I think. Both of these practices, the wet markets and the intensive raising of animals, big risks for pandemics. And if we want to reduce the risk of another catastrophe like the one we're experiencing right now, uh, that's a very good reason, not only for banning the wet markets, which certainly is one thing we should be doing, but also for looking uh, again at intensive farming and asking ourselves, do we really need this practice? Do we really want to have this practice, given not only the environmental problems, not only the Suffering it causes to animals, but also the risk it's causing to uh, us and to future generations of humans.
0: So, Gillian, you analyze the food and nutrition industry for big data management. Has the virus crisis changed the way people are consuming food? Is the industry changing?
3: Hi, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think sadly it's a little early to tell. Um, this crisis is, is still going on um, and we're not really out of the woods yet. But I think it's Indisputed, really, that um, this pandemic has shone extra light on a lot of these topics that are important in our consumer habits. If you look at the last few months, you have seen some changes seem to happen, not just in terms of what we're eating, but also how and, and where we're eating. You know, we've been eating a lot more in the home than we have been for quite some time. Uh, we've been ordering more online than ever. And I think we're when you look at actual sales of certain categories, it seems to be that we're a little bit more conscious about this link between our nutrition and our health. So for example, you've seen a bit of a spike in things like probiotics, which are sort of widely marketed with this idea of it being uh, an immunity boosting property of probiotics. Also health supplements Um, In the same vein, we've seen spikes of sales in these um, in a lot of different regions over the last few months. Equally, when it comes to various staples of premium quality, um, so for example, infant milk formula, uh, you saw some patterns at the beginning of the year where people seem to be gravitating to much more premium products, perhaps with this realization that actually you you want to be putting the best and consuming the best and giving the best to your children. Well, maybe it is
0: too early to tell, as you say, but Professor Singer, do you think that the world is headed in the right direction towards a more ethical food habit or systems
2: in place?
1: I find it hard to have much confidence that the world as a whole is headed in that direction. I do think that in the countries that are represented on this program, yes. Yes there are some promising signs that we are going in the right direction. Uh, But if you look at uh, China, for example, in particular, there seems to have been, with the increase in prosperity, a substantially increased demand for meat consumption, which used to be very low in China. It's still lower than it is in most Western countries, but it's increasing rapidly. And that's meant a big increase in factory farming and uh, all the environmental costs of that as well as the cost to the animals. And now, has that changed in the last six months because of the pandemic? I just don't really have the information on that. You would hope that it should, but I just can't comment. So, uh, I hope that we're going in the right direction, but I can't really say with any confidence that we are.
0: In 1970, the agricultural scientist Norman Borlaug was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for successfully breeding high-yielding dwarf wheat strains, launching what is now known as the Green Revolution. These miracle seeds tripled the amount of wheat produced from crops and are predicted to have saved 1 billion people from death by starvation. But these new strains required more water and expensive fertilizers, which poor farmers did not have. They also decreased soil fertility, genetic diversity, soil erosion, and increased vulnerability to pests. The long-term profits of Borlac's work have mainly benefited large companies at the expense of small farmers. This poses the question, do we want to be able to produce exponentially more food to encourage the growth of our global population, only to overburden and threaten the very existence of our planet's natural ecosystems. I'd like to switch now and talk about how food systems need to change to be sustainable. So, Dr. Halloran, can you tell us a little bit about how your time living in different parts of the world influenced the way you see food production and food systems today?
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, just to put it out there, I'm 32 years old. So, in terms of, you know, the the time span in which I've lived so far in my experience, it's interesting because I'm maybe one of few people now uh, in the in the western world who actually grew up on a farm in an agricultural landscape because now, you know, the majority of of people are living in cities. So, this is uh, this experience had a profound impact on me. I did not grow up on a farm with animals, but uh, where we actually cultivated our own uh, fruits and vegetables. So when deciding what I wanted to do when I grew up as a young person, I definitely became very interested in the origins of our food. So that had a profound impact on me and, and traveling abroad for, for my studies and for my research brought me to many different places in the world, including uh, many different countries in Africa and Asia Um, And also in Central America and seeing different kind of connectivities to food systems also really, I mean, hit home with me understanding the contextuality of food systems. And so we talk a lot about industrialized food systems because these are the predominant food systems in the Western world. But there's still a lot of (laughs) food systems worldwide that I think are still well functioning, uh, that are sustainable. And so if we actually zoom in on what makes these kinds of systems uh, sustainable, I think that's where we can take these lessons home. And one big thing there is the agrobiodiversity. In many parts of the the world, let's say in Eastern Africa, you have uh, food systems that are polycultures, where people are cultivating many different kinds of uh, fruits and vegetables and have Animals integrated into these systems. For me, it was really important to gather these experiences because many people now who are in positions of power and decision makers, they lack the actual direct contact to agriculture, to nature. Uh, They are not able to understand or differentiate between different kinds of agriculture and it gets lumped into one, one basket. So where we should be, you know, shifting towards, uh, systems that actually protect nature, work in respect with nature and move away from those that you know treat animals like machines uh, that are highly specialized so that they do not actually understand the impact in which they're having on the surrounding environment or ignore that impact. Yeah, unfortunately, there is a total disconnect between you know what people might want to eat and what we're producing. So just to give the, the example of the Nordic region here, We're really good at producing animal products, uh, dairy. We're good at producing fish. We're good at producing meat. And at the same time, there's a shifting demand. Here we have, in in particular, uh, millennials who are very interested in flexitarian diets, so reducing their meat and dairy intake and maybe shifting towards um, a much more plant-centric diet. Um, not necessarily plant-based or veganism, but something that is, is more or reductionist. And so what we're seeing here is that we're not producing the legumes that we should be eating uh, more of. We're not producing the nuts that we should be eating more of. And so if we're actually going to have much more food sovereignty here in the Nordic regions, we need to radically shift what is in the ground, what is in, what we're you know, farming in the seas, and also what we're farming on the land
1: one thing we haven't talked about is uh, the possibility of making animal products at the cellular level, not involving an animal at all, therefore also not needing to work in the fields with animals, but still producing products that are actually at the molecular level identical to meat or to milk, to dairy products. Uh, and there is a lot of money going into this research. We haven't seen any of these products yet commercialized. Um it's not that they can't be made, but rather it's that they're not being made yet at a price that is competitive with the animal products. But there is you know, a lot of money being essentially wagered on the belief that that will happen, that they will start to become economically uh, competitive. And, of course, that could dramatically transform um, agriculture because if we can produce, say, milk which is identical at the molecular level with milk from cows and we can do it more cheaply than cows – That could be the end of the dairy industry, for instance.
0: Do you think this would be
2: morally correct?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I think if we can do that economically and if we can do it in a way that uh, is much better for the environment than present uh, animal production that it would replace, then that would be a very good thing. And that is what it looks like. It looks as if uh, I've seen claims that, for example, producing uh, meat in vitro would only emit 3% of the greenhouse gases that producing it from an animal would. So, you get a 97% reduction. So, that's one reason for thinking it's a more ethical choice. And of course, the other big reason for thinking it's a more ethical choice is that there's no animal to suffer. There's no whole animal involved. Now, you know, I personally, I don't know that I would want to eat much of this anyway. I'd be curious to taste it, but I haven't eaten meat for 45 years. uh, So, more than that. So, why would I bother? I'm happy with a plant-based diet. But given that what we need to do is to shift the billions of people who are eating animal products, and a lot of them are eating it for choice, even though they could have a plant-based diet, I certainly would welcome the development of these products.
0: Did you know that in the 1700s, a pineapple would have cost around 8,000 of today's US dollars? This spiky, crowned fruit was considered a rare exotic luxury, only affordable to the wealthiest of Europeans, because it grew in the tropical climates of South America and the Caribbean, and would rarely survive the long journey to Europe and the American colonies. These fruits were often used as decorative symbols of wealth inside the home, only to be eaten as they began to rot. People even rented them by the hour, King Charles II of England went as far as commissioning a portrait that depicts a kneeling royal gardener presenting him with a pineapple. And just as some foods become less valuable and fashionable over time, others rise in status. Opulent ingredients that we consider luxurious today were once eaten by the poorest members of society. Caviar was actually so cheap that saloons used to serve it for free. And lobsters were so undesirable that prisons were only allowed to serve them to prisoners three times a week. So, Gillian, your work focuses on Big Dead's nutrition strategy. How did you get involved in this field? Did you study it in university?
4: Actually, no, I I didn't do anything like it at university. I did history and politics, actually, just down the road um, from Peter's uh, alma mater, but I grew up in a family in which uh, my mother was in the wine business. Uh, Wine and food always go together, and I had, from a very early age, this awareness of where things came from. Going to see how uh, the grapes were harvested and then made into this liquid that people were drinking at dinner, I think gives you an awareness as to where your food is coming from. And and that's something that I was very passionate about from the beginning. And funnily enough, I began my career in in politics in Brussels and then the Middle East. But actually, a lot of things that I worked on touched uh, on food, specifically in the Middle East. There were a lot of questions being asked around food security, but also nutrition in a region where they have very high rates of diabetes and obesity. So this was something that, always seemed to come back into my career at one point or the other and finally when I started uh, in finance at Pictay, working in the private asset business, I was looking at which new asset classes might have strong growth and one of the things I was looking at was around farmland and agriculture technology and that's about the point at which I changed to the public side and, and started in nutrition. Where I see the same sort of themes, but but from a listed perspective. So it's something that's always been a late motif uh, throughout my career and personal life.
0: Well, as we said earlier, eating right with a focus on health and longevity seems to have become more popular in this past few years. What corporates in the food industry are driving this trend, in your opinion? Who's already heard ahead of the curve?
4: A lot of this is really starting from consumers. Governments have been chiming in, uh, this year alone. You've seen the, the UK government, for example, come in with a lot of new rules about advertising junk food, which you could directly, arguably attribute to their prime minister's health scare, uh, during COVID. <laughs> but uh, so I think it really, the starting point is there. Um, and a lot of the food industry, um, obviously the big uh, incumbents are really forced to adapt to these consumer demands, which are being further enforced by governments, so uh, forced to make food that has uh, a better nutritional profile, so less sugar, less fat, um, and which still tastes good.
0: Dr. Afton, what are the right goals for sustainable food supply chains? We have reducing hunger, reducing obesity, reducing environmental impact. Does maximizing nutrition solve all of these?
2: Well, some great research that's coming out of the University of Oxford actually shows that the healthier choice in terms of what is healthy for for human health is actually the best for environmental health. Uh, So these go hand in hand. In many ways, it does. It does seem quite logical. But at least we have now a better understanding that we can present to, let's say, the food industry, to government, in terms of the overall sustainability and how we should be eating, that needs to be broken down to a much smaller level. So, uh, the research now has been very good, let's say, the, with the Eat Lancet Commission work, uh, really being monumental in highlighting, uh, the need to shift diets in particular regions of the world. Now we actually need to zoom in even more. We need to understand that even on a, on a sub national level, how we can actually promote certain kinds of diets. So what a good example of that would be the Mediterranean diet. This is a diet that was very much uh, environmentally sustainable, it had a low impact on the climate, and it was also very healthy. But if you go to the Mediterranean region where I just came from uh, yesterday, nobody eats this way anymore, or very few people eat this way. So there's been a massive dietary shift because of industrialization of the food system and actually trying to encourage how we move back to these, these ways of eating that were, that were much better for us and the planet. So these are, we have a a mismatch, I suppose, between uh, where we've moved away from many very interesting regional diets here, here in the European region and where we're heading. And I would say we're not doing enough to actually encourage traditional diets. And one thing that I've seen happen uh, now in terms of the shift towards plant-based diets is that the food industry has really uh, is really capitalizing on the shift uh, that needs to be made, and also the confusion around what should we, how should we actually eat. Um, So we see a lot of highly processed foods on the market, and to me, it's very sad because I've been eating a vegetarian and some in in some cases uh, for a few years, vegan diet for the majority of my life, and it, the wealth of ingredients that are out there, that, you that you know, a legume, a chickpea, uh, that are not processed, that are amazing foods. Why do we need to, you know, move towards something that is highly processed, replacing a highly processed uh, animal-based burger for a highly-based plant, uh, plant-based burger? To me, it's a little bit of a tragedy. And I know in terms of environmental impacts, yes, we can certainly... Uh, have less of an impact when we're shifting towards these products. But I also think we should think about human health, because a lot of these plant-based products that are highly processed are high in sugar, high in fat, high in salt, things that we should be eating less of as well.
1: Yeah, Afton, I I agree with you in in principle, if we could do that. But I, I don't think we have time to convert all of those people who are eating the burgers and the Kentucky Fried Chicken and all the rest of it. I I don't think we have time to wait for them to get to whole ingredients, to legumes and and vegetables and really, you know, learn how to cook again. Uh, It's a pity, uh, but I think, you know, I I support these uh, highly processed plant-based foods or for that matter, the cellular meat, if it can be done, just because I think we need to make this change and I can't see it happening fast enough um, through things like the Eat Lancet Commission, which again, I wholeheartedly support. Um, And maybe it's had a good impact in the Nordic countries. I hope so. I can't tell you that it's had any big impact in the United States, I'm sorry to say.
2: No, I completely agree with you. It's uh, just to say that it's something that, that is much more of a, you know, a vision that I would hope would play out. And of course, uh, in the time poor world that we live in, people are not going to cook things from scratch. (laughs) And uh, it, it is a tragedy,
0: this week's guests on Founding Conversation were Professor Peter Singer, Dr. Afton Halloran, and Gillian Deason. This series is brought to you by the BICTA Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How-To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario laurija Rasbetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.